Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the podcast, I am uh, sitting down with Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is now the third time I've sat with Dr. Jha since the start of the COVID-19 crisis. A lot has happened in that time, as I'm sure you're aware. You may have seen Dr. Ja talk about the COVID-19 crisis on MSNBC, CNN, Fox even. He's been on all the national shows, and that is because, in case it bears repeating, this issue, the pandemic, is not a political issue. I know we seem to be in this moment where wearing a mask has been politicized, going outside has been politicized, Wearing gloves has been politicized. Hand sanitizer has been politicized. The pandemic has been politicized. People dying has been politicized. If I have to add anything to this discourse besides this conversation you're about to hear, is that if you have family members right now, friends in your life that aren't taking this seriously, if you, listening to this show, aren't taking this seriously, I need only to point you to the increasing numbers of cases and deaths across this country as we try to reopen. For those of you who are privileged enough to not have to go into an office, those of you that can't afford to pay for takeout, for Instacart groceries, however you're doing 
you know, your shopping, however you're getting by. I'd really urge you to have a conversation with the people in your life who think we are past this. Because we are not past it. I really wish we were. I'd like to go play basketball. I'd like to go to a bar. I'd like to go see a movie. I'd like to see my parents. I'd like to see my grandparents. They're 93 and 80. I know they don't have much time left. I'm not being cynical and being realistic. I know they don't have much time. I know if you're listening to this show, you have people in your life that don't have much time left. I know that's hard. I know that's hard to not see them. I'm not an expert, so that's why we're having an expert on this show. To explain the numbers. To explain how we can better move through this moment. To explain how we can get to the other side of this. For the last month, we've had fairly difficult conversations on this podcast about race. We had those with Jelani Cobb and with Hank Willis Thomas. In the past, we've had them with a whole bunch of people. Gloria Steinem, Malcolm Gladwell, Dolores Huerta. These conversations are ongoing. They do not stop. And the same is true about this crisis. They do not stop because we're tired of the pandemic. They cannot stop because we're all a little restless and fatigued. I fucking get it. I'm restless and fatigued too. I hear you. I want to just have a nice time again. Do you remember life when stakes felt low? Holy cow. That feels very, very far right now. And it will continue to feel very, very far right now if you and I do not have conversations with those in our life that choose to believe we're over the hump, that this pandemic is nothing. So if you need help starting that conversation, here's a talk I had with Dr. Ashish Jha. He lays out the problem much better than I can. So I hope you're doing okay. I hope you and yours are safe. I really do. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for making us part of your week. And please, stay safe. And now, here is Dr. Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha, thank you so much for being uh, back on this show. I wish you weren't here on this show, but it's nothing against you. I like you a, a lot. I just hope we weren't going to have to do this. Um, Sam, thank you for having me on. And I hate to say this, um, but if you want to keep tracking COVID and all of the ways in which it is going to disrupt our lives, I fear that we're going to be talking um, a lot for the next year. Well, then I guess you just have a permanent residency on this podcast <laughs> for unfortunately all the wrong reasons <laughs> um why don't we jump right into this what have you been seeing uh, across the country this week as numbers have been going up for the first time in in maybe two months i am genuinely concerned um nervous uh a little upset about what's happening uh, across the country. Things are looking pretty tough and I don't see a very clear path out. 
Um, so let me let me explain a bit more. Across many many states, um, we're seeing rapidly rising number of cases. And initially, there were some who tried to downplay it by saying, "Well, we just are doing more testing." Sure, that was a small part of it, but it was pretty clear early on that wasn't all of it. And now, as hospitals are starting to fill up in Houston and Phoenix and parts of Florida, it's very clear that what we're seeing is large outbreaks of this disease, and it's upsetting because. It means a lot more people are going to get sick, and a lot more people are going to die. And frustrating, Sam, because it was all foreseeable. It was it was something that pretty much everybody who was paying attention um, suggested that this was what was going to happen. And the political leaders, in some ways, defied it and thought they could uh, will their way through the virus. But the virus is not easily intimidated. It does what it does. I know you're in dialogue with. A whole host of, of medical experts. And it seems like the people in the White House, the administration, is uh, either unconvinced or uninterested in having science-based dialogues around COVID-19. So I'm wondering, have experts thought to potentially circumvent the federal government and instead start sending their information and having you know, more intimate one-on-one -on -one conversations with state legislators. There is no coordinated effort because we're all, you know, kind of a ragtag group of public health <laughs> academics and experts. We're all trying to do our own thing, though we do talk amongst ourselves some just to touch base and see what other people are learning. I, what I will say is two things. Um, first is the White House itself is interesting in that they have, as part of the White House task force still, Tony Fauci and Debbie Burks. And Dr. Fauci is arguably the most important expert in the country on this. And Dr. Burks is quite accomplished and, uh, and very sophisticated as well. And so they're there and they're voicing their views and mostly not being listened to, but not completely. And occasionally something they say that comes out of the White House, I can see the fingerprints of Drs. Fauci and Burks, but it's pretty rare. The rest of us are spending, you know, pretty much every waking hour talking both to Congress because Congress can do things and push the administration in ways that are important, but also spending enormous amounts of time with uh, governors and state legislatures, uh, the ones that are interested in our views. And there are quite a few. And, and so uh, that is happening. But at the end of the day, there is no substitute for a functioning federal government. And when the federal government stops functioning on the biggest pandemic in a century, you can do a lot to try to make up for it. But it's, you know, it's a it's a distant sort of second from what we could have gotten if the federal government decided to take this pandemic seriously. Now, see, I want to hone in on one thing you just said, which is the line, if they're interested in our views. And to me, that's a little bit of the problem, which is that for some reason, we have written about and reported on the virus as if it is a view. What you're offering 
and what experts across the country are offering are not views. They're not opinions. They're just numbers. They're data. They're facts. What's frustrating is that since the beginning, but increasingly so in the last six weeks, uh, the COVID-19 crisis has become overtly political. It's unbelievable in some way that this is where we are. And, and it's driven in part by a concerted effort by a group of people in the media um, to play up the idea that this is no worse than the flu, that this is all a political hoax. And when every bit of data and fact sort of makes that storyline difficult to sustain, they, you know, they kind of change the goalpost. And so when they've said, oh, nobody's going to die from this, and when tens of thousands of Americans started dying, uh, they said, well, it's just, it's just corruption. It's doctors and nurses, people as dying from COVID when they aren't. And then when it became pretty untenable to argue that all of America's doctors and nurses overnight became corrupted to pull off a scheme, you know, to hoodwink the American people. Now the storyline is, well, it doesn't really matter that lots of people have died because they're all just old people. And <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because it's so incredibly offensive and, uh, and awful. Um, but what they have found is a willing audience. My sense, Sam, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but my sense is there are always people who are peddling snake oil and peddling, um, you know, uh, fake and alternative facts. Um, but in this moment, because the reality is so hard and the snake oil salesmen are peddling something that's sort of cheap and easy, they have found a willing audience in, in a good chunk of political leaders who say, I like that guy's view, not the public health folks who are telling me that what's ahead is going to be difficult. As you know, uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, has had some trouble in their reporting process. They put out one number one day, they backtrack the next day, they say it is very transmittable, then, you know, uh, it's suddenly not so transmittable. Obviously, the data is changing, and I give um, often experts the benefit of the doubt, especially as data changes and we're learning more. But where are we at on that right now? There has been some confusion. Some, um, some of it is because the underlying science has changed. And they are, you want people to change their views, right? Because as the evidence changes, you want to know the latest. And then some of it has just been sloppy communication. Um, so let's talk about what we know about transmission right now. What we know is that the in, in a normal world where there are no controls, no restrictions, people are out and about doing their own thing, the average infected person will infect about three other people. And that's why this virus grows so quickly, because those three will then infect nine, who will infect 27. Now, I'm not going to do the math, but you realize why very quickly you can get into hundreds, then thousands, then millions, and it just keeps growing. And so that's a feature of something called the R-naught. R-naught is a replication factor. It's how often an infected person uh, infects others. But one of the most interesting statistics that has come about in the last, I have really become aware of it in the last month, six weeks, uh, is the K, which is not something people talk about, which is the dispersion factor. And I'll explain it. 
Um, while the average person might spread it to three, the truth is that about 10% of people do about 80% of the spreading. Maybe up to 20% of people do 80% of the spreading. But the point is, it's a small minority. Majority of people who are infected never spread it to anybody. But a small proportion of people seem to do almost all the spreading of the virus. And we can't quite figure out who they are. Like we can't predict with any reliability. We can't say they're older people or younger people, you know, taller, shorter, nothing about them a priori is, is obviously uh, something that we can identify. But the other thing we've learned about transmission is that it's not random where it happens. Those large transmission events that fuel so many outbreaks, they happen almost always indoors. Not always, but almost always happen indoors. They happen in large gatherings, and they happen when no one's wearing a mask. And if everybody wore masks, anytime they were out and about, anytime they were in a public space, um, if we really limited gatherings, and especially indoor gatherings, um, we could actually have a pretty profound impact on this disease because we could dramatically lower those super spreading events, those things that those people who are giving it to 20, 30, 50 people at a time, we could really alter that. And that is a, a thing about transmission that, I don't know, six weeks ago, I don't think I really appreciated, but we have really learned in the last four, six weeks. For those 10 to 20% that are doing 80% of the spreading, have they located, if not the age or gender, but rather the occupation? Because it seems to me that the 10 to 20% would likely be essential workers that are exposed to a wide variety of people just by the nature of their job. Yeah, so it's a great question, and it really gets at this broader point, which is um, instead of trying to hunt down who these folks are, we should think about the context in which people are exposed to a large number of people. And they are, for instance, in grocery stores, maybe, or in meatpacking plants, uh, or in nursing homes. And that's where we tend to see a lot of big outbreaks, um, because there are a large variety of people uh, there, and someone walks in infected. Sometimes they don't even know they're infected. They have no symptoms. And they might uh, find themselves in an in a enclosed space and might spread the virus to 20, 30, or in some cases, 60 or 70 people uh, just from one person. It's remarkable. Uh, but it does mean that we have to really think hard about enclosed spaces, indoor spaces, and how we manage uh, asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic transmission in those contexts. So when it comes to enclosed spaces, and this goes to the larger question about transmission from who, which is that it seems clear now that most of the transmission comes through droplets um, versus particles on a surface, so to speak. But what are the, the real numbers on that in this moment? Yeah, so we think most of the transmission is happening person to person, not so much on surfaces. Surfaces probably still contribute a little bit. Um, but, you know, when people think about obsessively wiping down everything, my take is 
it's probably worth wiping down some things. Um, but that's lar largely not the main issue. First of all, let's talk a little bit about asymptomatic transmission. Transmission from somebody who otherwise feels fine. They're not having symptoms at all. They don't have a fever, they don't have a cough. We think as much as 50% of all the transmission happens from somebody who doesn't have symptoms. That's a real challenge because that could be you, that could be me. We could be out, we could be having uh, a drink together at a bar and I could spread it to you and 10 other people and feel fine. So that's a big part of the challenge. We do think most of the transmission is happening indoors and it's happening from uh, breathing out from droplets when I cough, but maybe just from the, the virus in my breath, if I'm infected, uh, I, could be, I could be spreading it. And this is why things like indoor restaurants, uh, bars are such a huge problem because they're, they're great places for spreading the virus. They're great places because when one is talking, they release thousands of droplets into the air, correct? Correct. And so if I'm sitting in and plus bars have music on. And so if I'm at a bar, I might be speaking a bit louder. Uh, it turns out singing, laughing, speaking loudly, shouting. Those just those things tend to release more more droplets, more spit. You know, you're, you, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody's when they're screaming, it's just a bit more of, of the stuff coming off. And that is uh, how the virus spreads. And so the person listening next to you uh, is going to pick up a lot of that virus, but so might five or 10 people around you uh, at, a, at a bar. And so I've, uh, you know, in Phoenix right now, Arizona is the state that scares me the most in terms of its numbers. And in Phoenix, at least as of a couple of days ago, nightclubs were open. And nightclubs are just a nightmare for this virus because they are a perfect breeding ground for hundreds and hundreds of people getting infected at once. Um, so we're, I think as a, as a country, we're going to have to make some decisions. Like, can we live without nightclubs and indoor bars for a year? Not, it's not going to be easy. It's a little painful for people who enjoy going to that. I, uh, I like going to a bar and having drinks with a friend. I, I think that's, it's lovely, but we may not be able to do that if we want to keep the economy on track and keep uh, tens of thousands of people from getting infected and dying. I've seen a few experts talk about this kind of dinner party scenario where you're at a round table and they say that the person at the head of the table, if they have COVID, they're likely to only spread it to the people on the left and right of them. Here's what we know. And, and, and maybe the biggest point in all of this, Sam, is I try to stay humble about what I know because this virus has surprised me on multiple occasions. And I... Um, I try not to make definitive pronouncements. You know, when the president held his rally in Tulsa, uh, and a lot of my public health friends said, this is going to be a disaster and hundreds of people are going to get infected. I said, or maybe no one will. Like, I don't know. It's a very, very high risk thing to do. But we can do very high risk things and occasionally get away with it. It's just that you can't always get away with it. And eventually it catches up to you. And so here's what we know about dinners and restaurants. It's a really important paper, maybe a month, six weeks ago, 
from a restaurant in China where one infected person who had you know, the mildest of symptoms, I think she had like a little bit of a sore throat, went out to dinner with her family. And if I remember the paper correctly, 12 people in the restaurant ended up getting infected, uh, three or four of her family members, but also about eight other patrons. And it was all about the flow of air, of the air conditioning, that the way the air conditioning was blowing, it just blew the, from her breath the virus in a certain direction. And it was very mild. It wasn't like a very strong air conditioner that everybody was getting overwhelmed by. But it blew it in a way that consistently over the hour, hour and a half that she ate and other people sat, a whole bunch of folks ended up getting infected. And so that has been a cautionary tale that says, and folks at other tables, not just people next to her. Mm -hmm. So that's been a cautionary tale that says, you know, this stuff can spread and airflows are subtle in rooms and we don't always appreciate or understand them. Um, if somebody wanted to have a dinner party and called me up and said, I really want to have a dinner party. What I would say is if you could have it outside, I'd feel much better. It wouldn't guarantee safety, but it would be clearly safer. If you can't have it, if you're going to have it inside, if you could have it with windows open and lots of air flowing through, that would also make me feel better. If you can't do either of those things and you're in a place with a reasonable amount of disease outbreak, like let's say the Southern California right now is really one of the hot spots of the country, um, it, it's pretty risky. And, you know, the idea that... Um, Again, I get like how much of our lives we're giving up in the in the context of this virus. And so I get the desire to get some of it back. But I wouldn't I wouldn't host such a dinner party if I had to be indoors without windows open and um, with six, eight people. And I don't think I would attend one, even if it was from a really close friend. In that restaurant in China, was everyone wearing a mask? No. Masks are tough in a restaurant right? Because you're eating. And so people are constantly having, would have to take off and take on and take off. So that's been a challenge. When it comes to masks, if everyone wore one, no matter the situation, outside, in a grocery store, walking your dog, where do you think we would be right now? I think if 80, 90% of people wore masks, it would make a very big difference. So let me explain what I, how much of a difference. There are some modeling studies, and I'm a little skeptical because I'm always skeptical of excessively good news because I worry that I want to believe it because it's good. But there are some studies that say if 90% of people wore masks, we'd essentially bring this pandemic to a halt. That would be extraordinary, right? That would be extraordinary. Um, I, I, as I said, I'm skeptical that the effects of masks are that good. But it may be. They may be. Um, but certainly if everybody wore masks, we wouldn't see these large outbreaks. Um, that we would be able to do a lot of the things that we want to go go about our lives and doing. We'd be able to get back to work. Um, it'd feel much safer going into a grocery store. Um, it would feel much safer going into a, a, a clothing store. Just lots of things that we're doing that right now are risky would become much, much safer. What I have argued is if we just, if we want 100% of our life back, if we want life the way it looked nine months ago, we can't, we're in a pandemic and we're gonna get like 30%. But if we're willing to live with 90% of what life looked like six months ago, we can get that. 
And that's, in, in a sense, the sort of crux of it, is we're not willing to give up 10%. And so we'll end up with something much, much, much worse. And that's frustrating to me. So what is that 10% we have to give up? I think we can't do nightclubs for a year. In many places, we can't do indoor restaurants. Not for a while, not until the level of the virus in the community gets really, really low. No concerts, no sports. I know it feels like maybe more than 10%, but it, it maybe that's, but at least for a while until the virus levels get very low. Then we can start doing some of those things. If we can do that, no large gatherings, keep it outdoors, wear masks, and do some more testing and tracing and isolation, we can, we can like have life that isn't so scary and overwhelming. But we just, we're fighting about every one of those things. We wanna hold rallies. We don't wanna wear masks. We think testing is bad because it helps you find the disease. That's where we are. We're fighting about like public health 101. And we're gonna end up almost surely having the worst response of any industrialized country in the world. Um, I, was, I was talking to a group of public health colleagues earlier today, and someone said, you know, we're gonna have the worst response in the world. And someone said, actually, Brazil and Russia may end up being worse. And I thought, yeah, like that's where we are, that it's possible that Brazil and Russia may end up being worse, but those are our comparator countries. I can't believe we're getting excited about maybe receiving a bronze medal in this. But bronze medal of, right, of like the worst performers in the world. <laughs> like literally there are a hundred countries doing a better job than us. You know how many people have died of this disease in Vietnam? No. As of today, zero. Vietnam gets lots of travelers from China. They got lots of cases imported in. They haven't had anybody die. Maybe their surveillance system missed one or two people. I can't promise that it didn't. But they they have largely been able to keep their economy open and go on. And they get some outbreaks every once in a while. But everybody's masked up. They do testing and tracing. And people and they're not doing large gatherings. They're not doing big events. And their their lives are much more normal than ours. Since it seems like we're not going to be able to willingly give up that 10% that you're talking about. The writing on the wall is pretty clear. So if and when there are huge outbreaks again, like the kinds we saw in New York City or New Jersey or Washington, are you worried about hospitals being over capacity again? They're happening now in Houston. Texas Medical Center, the largest, one of the largest hospital systems complexes in the world, is running out of ICU beds. So they're sending adult ICU patients to Texas Children's. So that's happening in Houston, which is a healthcare metropolis. Uh, it's happening in Phoenix. It's happening in parts of Florida. And in the next week or two, I suspect it's going to be happening in at least a dozen states. So yeah. I'm I, I'm very worried that this is the future we have uh, have coming, and then the question is: Okay, after all of that, I suspect I'd be very surprised if a few states, a few southern states, did not end up putting in a shelter-in-place order in the next few weeks. I suspect they will, because they'll have no choice. 
Um, and then after all of that, the question is, will we have learned a lesson? Will we stop fighting about masks? Or are we still going to fight about masks? And at what point do we decide, you know, masks are not the greatest thing in the world, but they're not that big a deal. And maybe we'll be adults and just put on the mask. And if wearing masks and avoiding nightclubs and not going to concerts is how we get through the next year without killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, shutting down our hospitals, wrecking our economy, maybe it's okay. You know, there's also older people, most of whom are probably not considering going to a nightclub. But these are people who are restless and want to see their grandchildren and know more intimately than perhaps you and I do that time is limited, that it is ephemeral, and they have lived more life than they have left. And it's hard to say to those people, you have to wait longer to see the people you love. Yeah. Um, two thoughts on this. First is one of the arguments that people make about the current outbreak as well as a lot of young folks. It sounds right and sounds like it's not a big deal until you think more about it and then you realize those young folks are then going to go home and infect older people and they're going to infect their parents and grandparents. So that is a real uh, challenge. They also are just keeping the level of virus in the community at a, such a high level that it is super risky for older people. If we if we got our act together and did the things I've been talking about, you could bring the virus levels down enough that it would become safer for older people to go visit their kids and grandkids. Um, the What we are doing to older Americans is we're debating between is it okay to let them die and get the infection and die, which of course I find morally repugnant, or do we just keep them shut down for the next year? And I'm like, I want a third option. And the third option is I want to suppress the virus in our communities so older people can come back and, you know, and we can engage with them. I haven't seen my parents in five, six months. Uh, they haven't seen anybody in three and a half, four months. They've been essentially locked down, just the two of them. And I don't want to keep them locked up for another year. But I can't feel comfortable, and they don't feel comfortable, getting out if there is a large viral outbreak in their community. I'm sure you've seen some of the more flippant responses to this question about how, look, old people are old, and they've already lived a full life. So if they have to go, they have to go. Have you been surprised by the kind of absence of empathy on a subject that I really believed before this? I don't know. I thought it was a subject we could all agree on. Like, I know we can't agree on much, but I thought, okay, human life, old people, we we should want them to live. That That seems like a pretty agreeable idea. As I said, it's... To me, it's morally repugnant. It's ridiculous. Uh, it, it is also just, it makes no sense because, okay. So you say, all right, uh, old people, what does that mean? What's the definition? And usually it's whoever's older than you, right? Because <laughs> if you're 50, you say, yeah, old people are 
in their 60s or above. And if you're 60, you're like, yeah, old people are in their 70s or above. And so there's, there's no definition of old people. And what we know is that even young people in their 20s and 30s can and sometimes get very sick from this virus. So, um, but also we know that people with chronic disease, high blood pressure and diabetes, we know kids with really severe chronic diseases can get quite sick from this virus. So do we say, well, those kids, they have chronic disease. Their lives are not worth the same amount. Do we say, you know, yeah, I know that's 30-year-old woman with um, cancer. She's got cancer. So, like, her life is not worth so much. Like, is that the road we're going down? Because if that's the road we're going down, I want off. And I actually want off on the first stop. I don't, I don't want any of this. Mostly because I don't know how to do it. And I can't imagine as a society feeling good uh, that we've made these kinds of decisions when the alternative was put on a mask, avoid the nightclub, do some testing and just use your brain for a year and we'll get through this. The medical community predicted the second wave back in March, early April. There were already prognostications about how there was definitely going to be a second wave. They believe that second wave to occur in the fall. Did you think there was going to be a second wave because people just started to stop caring about it? No. I assumed there would be a second wave because the fall and winter would come and we would be forced to spend time indoors and the virus would replicate. Um, we're still in the first wave. Everything we're seeing right now is all first wave. And the way we're doing this, it may be that there are no waves. We're just kind of in water up to our neck all year long with little laps of little tiny mini waves that put get the water above our head and then we come back up. But that's sort of a bit of what we're doing. We, we never let the first wave subside. We opened up too early. And large chunks of the country have water up to their neck, and it takes very little to start drowning. And the second wave, the cold weather driving us all indoors, making it hard to uh, slow down the spread of the virus, it feels like a distant problem right now. Um, in the short run, we've just got just to get the current large outbreak that's affecting more than half of our country under control. And we've got to make sure that the other half of the country doesn't go down this path. It's all doable. It's all doable. Uh, it's just an issue of whether we want to do it or not. Are you hearing about any potential life rafts to stick with the drowning water metaphor here? No. So I was going to say a couple of things. Treatments are getting better. We've got a couple of therapies that look like they can lower mortality. We might get better on testing at some point in the fall. Uh, the vaccine, I think, is sometime in 2021. Um, I don't know when. Hopefully early of 2021, but uh, not making big bets on that. I do think it'll happen sometime in the first half of 2021. So that's that's where we are. And I don't, you know, I don't know that there is much else as, as a life raft. Um, this will... Look, a year from now, Sam, I'd love it if you'd invite me to your show in July of 2021, because I think we'll be done largely. Life will not be normal, but it'll be better. The question isn't, are we going to get through it? 
the question is, how many people are going to die between now and then? How much of our economy are we going to wreck? How many people are going to suffer? And how much of it was avoidable? The life rafts will help a little along the way. Um, but fundamentally, this is a problem of um, we're up to our neck in the water and uh, we got to do some things to get a bit closer to dry land. In the absence of a vaccine and on this point that you're talking about, how many deaths would it take, do you think, for people to reconsider this crisis nationwide? Oh, Sam, I would have, if you had asked me this two months ago, I would have said 100,000 would be too much. That the, Amer the American people couldn't tolerate 100,000 Americans dying and acting like this is not a big deal. And we're at a, about 125,000. And you still have a minority, but a chunk, a sizable minority, acting like this is no big deal. So I, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I would have gotten it so wrong two months ago, it's not clear to me why I'd get it more right now. I can tell you are disappointed. I don't think I'm disappointed. I think I'm frustrated because I know people who've died and they we're never getting their lives back. And if this was a disease where we had no options, no ideas, couldn't do a thing, those deaths would be tragic but understandable, like we're in a pandemic. But when we know so much about what to do, and most of the things that we have to do are not that heroic, we don't have to storm the beaches of Normandy. We have to wear a mask, and we have to avoid certain types of activities. And yeah, they're inconvenient. I, I get frustrated because too many of our political leaders just don't have the courage to just stand up and say, hey, do these things. And um, and I think too many Americans, not a majority, but a small minority, um, have decided that it's not worth their time and effort to do the things that will keep us all safe. And that, I guess I, in that way, that is disappointing. But I think mostly it's a bit frustrating. Are you hopeful in any way? I am. I'm always hopeful. I do think that the, the things that are coming, the therapies, will help some. I also think there are states that are taking it much more seriously than others. Um, and I'm always hopeful that when the disease starts hitting closer to home for people, where it did in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Massachusetts, when that same experience happens in Arizona and Texas and Florida and South Carolina, and other places, that people will decide they don't want this anymore. So I keep going, right? I keep telling people what I think. I keep trying to communicate in as clear and valid of a way as I can. It's a line that's attributed to Winston Churchill. I don't know if he said it, um, which is, you know, Americans always do the right thing. They like to try everything else first. So maybe that's what we're doing. We're just trying out all the wrong ways to, to manage this pandemic. And then we'll, we'll figure out what the right thing is, and then we'll just do it. Dr. Ja, thank you very much. Sam, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back on, and uh, hope we get to talk again, uh, maybe under a cheerier uh, uh, moment in, in time. I'll take the cheerier moment. 
Sounds good. <laughs> Be well. Thank you. our show special thanks this week to dr ashish Jha. he is the director of the harvard global health institute in cambridge massachusetts to learn more about him and his work you can visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com you can listen and subscribe to our entire back catalog on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher wherever you do your listening If you'd like to join our email list, drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. We're thinking of putting together this thing, I don't know, maybe once or twice a month about the guests that come on this podcast, uh, upcoming episodes that we're excited about, maybe some playlists of music that we're listening to, films we're watching, something like that. If you'd like to be part of that, to be part of that extended community with our staff, send me an email at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. That includes our executive producer, Janik Zabravo, our associate producer, Nikki Spina, our editors, Andre Lin, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our social media is by Kiran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, graphics by Ian Jones, and the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Hassan Minaj. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.